Welcome to the July 1st, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. beautiful years I had my dog and constant companion, Maccabee, and treasured him, I also allowed myself maudlin imaginings of how it would be when he died, when he no longer responded when I called his name. It would be a proof of his death because Maccabee followed me everywhere, wanted to be as near as possible, came whenever I called. He was comforted on the night he was dying not by the high levels of morphine-based drugs we gave him, but only by my nearness. The one time I left him for a little while, though all night he had been unable to lever himself into a standing position, he somehow managed it and walked very slowly into the room where I was resting with Tim. So calling Maccabee and having him not respond, not wake, not beat his tail on the floor, not even flick an ear or look at me, that would be the ultimate proof of his death. I always imagined that when he had died, I would be unable to resist calling to him, summoning him back to me, and that this was how I would know he was truly gone. Not by his utter stillness, but by his utter impassivity, because that was the most impossible response between us. No response at all. Before I say anything else, Let me say that I am basing my exploration of this topic on a few life experiences of death and loss, most recently and explicitly of this dog I loved. I am very aware that many people in this congregation have suffered far worse losses in the past year than I did. If my own loss was even worse, no doubt I would not be able to preach on it at all. Certainly not so soon. Mine does not approach what some of us have suffered, but it was enough, together with my awareness that in the space of eight months, we have lost six people with close ties to this church. Those deaths have helped define the past church year for me. And with my own loss added, my reflections have run strongly along the path of divining and evaluating what happens after death for we who are the living and the left behind. So I am using Maccabee as a catalyst and as a point of departure, and I hope that as I do this, you know I recognize that I am only able to do this because my loss was not worse. As I told the kids, when he actually did die, I watched him breathe and then stop, and that was the only difference. I had no doubts he was gone, though his head was still pressed warm against me. Nothing else had changed, but it was obvious. I looked at the vet, and she nodded, and calling to him didn't enter my mind. If it had, I would have rejected the idea, because as I remember it, I was actually trying not to use his name as I was stroking him and speaking to him. As the medication went into his veins to end him, I wanted him to have no struggle letting go of life and the pain and the confusion he was in. Least of all did I want to indulge my grief so selfishly as to send him away and then possibly complicate his dying by trying to summon him back. 
In the months after, when I have been alone in the house with evidence of him everywhere, finding a tuft of his gorgeous coat even as his ashes sit in a cherrywood box, I have missed him and wished for him and spoken his name aloud even when I was by myself, but very quietly. And I haven't thought it through. That's just what I've done. Thinking it through lately has shown me that I've wanted to say Maccabee's name as a way to affirm that he existed, but I haven't wanted it to seem like I was calling him because even though I'm very clear that he's dead and gone, even though already occasional days happen when I don't feel how missing he is for me, even though I've gotten used to doing everything without him and coming home to a door that doesn't have him on the other side, stamping and prancing and welcome, even though I know and believe and accept that he is dead and gone, I still don't want to have the experience of calling him, really calling him, and having him not answer. What is this? What pain, what reality do I think I am staving off? I have even begun a new phase of my life with a very cute companion to inherit Maccabee's mantle, and he is different from Maccabee. And I love him. So what am I doing so carefully avoiding calling Maccabee? Even with all the proof of his absence and death and my own acceptance, this last dreaded, unnecessary proof feels as unbearable as it always did in my premature imaginings. I could do it. I could also lash myself with a whip. The two would not be that different to me right now. This is not unlike what Joan Didion talks about in her book, The Year of Magical Thinking. Her story details the year following her husband John Dunn's sudden death from a heart attack. He died after 40 years of marriage, a marriage where, as writers, they both worked at home and saw each other all the time every day. He died while their grown daughter was in the hospital, unconscious, possibly dying of acute and sudden pneumonia. Later that same night as her husband died, Joan is back home in her living room with a friend, and she is thinking about letting some close friends in Los Angeles know what has happened. In trying to figure out the time change, she goes from working out when he died East Coast time and whether it was that time yet in Los Angeles to wondering if, then, it had also happened in Los Angeles. Was there time to go back? Could we have a different ending on Pacific time? Here's how Didion defines magical thinking. Through the winter and spring, there had been occasions on which I was incapable of thinking rationally. I was thinking as small children think, as if my thoughts or wishes had the power to reverse the narrative, change the outcome. In my case, this disordered thinking had been covert. noticed, I think, by no one else, hidden even from me, but it had also been, in retrospect, both urgent and constant. She gives other examples. She gives away a lot of John's clothing and then stops because he will need his shoes if he comes back. She won't read any obituaries and eventually realizes it is because they remind her of his, and she has allowed other people to think that he was dead. This kind of thinking begins almost immediately for her. She asks for an autopsy, thinking in the back of her mind that if it shows what went wrong was simple, then they might be able to fix it. 
I know what she's talking about. Grief has obviously sent me into magical thinking. Clinical and anecdotal analyses of mourning, everything from Freud to C.S. Lewis's self-reportage of A Grief Observed, tell us that grief is huge and it sends us out of our ordinary living. Perhaps in keeping up with the speeded up rate of life in this last century, perhaps in keeping with America's focus on frontiers and the future, perhaps in keeping with our modern mania for youth and all that comes with it, like hope and new life, we have increasingly begun to emphasize limits to grief and the grieving process. We assign artificial durations, one year, five years, so many years for this kind of loss, so many years for that kind of loss. We assign grief stages and seek to move dutifully through them as if they are stepping stones on a genteel garden path that we can hardly miss, rather than the anguished flailing of psyches in a wilderness that is awesome and often terrifying. We still learn and tell stories of ultimate love and loss, but they come from Shakespeare or opera or Broadway. We don't expect them in our lives or those of our neighbors. No one dies of a broken heart anymore, do they? Actually, they do. We do. We humans sicken and even die of grief all the time. We believe it not from the timeless art that tells us so, but insurance statistics, which relate that family and close friends of someone who has died are at quite discernibly greater risk for accidents and illness, including death. We lose our jobs, we lose our relationships, we become estranged or mentally ill or self-destructive. All manner of things happen to us after we lose someone we love. Exactly what happens depends on lots of factors, including the exact nature of the loss, our family systems, our life experience, levels of support from family and friends, our mental and physical health histories, our class, our health insurance, personal leave allowances, and on and on. All that is true, but we no longer honor it much. Didion notices this and quotes Philip Aries, or Aries in his poetically written Western Attitudes Toward Death. A single person is missing for you, and the whole world is empty. But one no longer has the right to say so aloud. He notes that in the West we have changed our attitudes toward mourning, treating it as a form of, quote, morbid self-indulgence. Indeed, most of our dramatic aspects of Western practice are ancient, not modern. Ancient is the tradition that everything stops to take care of the dead and the mourning. Modern is the custom that we get cremated, saving space on the planet and the need to deal with the body as part of the mourning ceremony, and we urge our loved ones to hold a memorial service at some later time that will be convenient for all. I once went to a traditional Jewish funeral for the relative of a very close friend. The funeral director came and pinned a ribbon to each of our dark outfits and then made a small rip in the ribbon. The torn ribbon symbolizes rent clothing, the kind of rending of your clothing that goes along with tearing at your hair and collapsing and wailing in grief. And that's biblical, right? That's biblical or maybe Eastern or maybe something else. But it's not us. It's not what we do. What if we witnessed someone doing that? Would we feel we were seeing someone expressing grief to the point of anguish? Or would we rather feel that such a display was a little over the top? 
and they probably need care, maybe a doctor, maybe a sedative, some kind of control. Don't we admire, even if we also worry for, people who go through terrible loss with their act together? Isn't that why every time I am working on a memorial service or funeral with a family, every time the question always comes up as to whether someone can get up and speak, which they wish to do, because they are afraid they might lose it, which generally means cry, lose their ability to speak easily, or otherwise show what they're going through. We may not be a society that hires professional mourners who can really lift up the spirit of the thing, but why should we always be so concerned that we not lose it in public? Or maybe even in private? What would be so terrible? What would we think if we were in the congregation or when we have been in the congregation and saw someone go up to speak and struggle to get through what they wanted to say? or even fail to complete what they wanted to say. I have seen it. And what I think is something like this. That is a brave person. This is such a hard thing to do. They are in pain. I, too, am in pain, and now partly for them. What in that is not what we would want? Gender stereotypes and Protestant stiff upper-lipping it aside. What a relief it must be to express our grief that way. When the funeral director tore my ribbon and I learned why, I thought, one day if I am ever that grieved, I will go ahead and tear my clothes and wear them torn. This contained, formal, clean little symbol only points to what should be, what we should feel free to do, which is not about small, tasteful, elegant references to agony. Being half-Jewish, I've encountered a lot to admire or emulate about the way Jews do death. From the drama and histrionics I remember, especially my distant relative who tried to throw herself into her husband's grave. It was sort of half-hearted, so... (laughs) to the long, thorough process of sitting shiva. This is when Jews take a week off after someone has died and cover the mirrors in their houses, and they stay home receiving visitors and food. That's all they do. They don't worry about societal pressures not to grieve too exclusively or expressively. They don't worry about their looks or their work or anything else. If an errand needs to be done, someone other than the family does it and expects to. All the family does, and usually the very close friends, is sit and talk and visit and think and share about who they've lost and what they're going through. Almost all of what they do is remembering. I have no universal prescription for going through grief and mourning and living after the death of someone we have loved. Each of us walks our own path, and my way is not yours, and yours is not another's, and on some parts of our paths we meet and on others we diverge. But whatever the details of our journeys of loss and grief, of healing, and of what never goes away, remembering and how we remember are crucial. On a recent This I Believe segment on National Public Radio, someone spoke about their commitment to remembering well as almost an antidote to death. 
Death is a form of oblivion. That is its greatest injustice. For all the attention we pay to these vessels, our bodies, what matters most is our souls. That a living soul, full of such passion and fear and longing and courage and beauty and love, should disappear in every sense from this realm of existence, however much we care, however much we have left to give, however cruelly or young or unready we may die, is literally incomprehensible. And yet it is true and inescapable, even for the famous and the learned and the rare, rare cases when some representative of a soul endures, <clears throat> it ultimately becomes a lonesome construct, art or writing or discovery that is viewed at last with very different eyes and context and language than that of one's own time and people. This oblivion is the root of much in religion to all of us left behind over and over again. And so full ourselves of those precious intangibles, which now include memories of the one disappeared. It is impossible to understand and reconcile ourselves. We may accept it because it is clearly the brute way of this world, but we cannot understand it. It leaves us with few choices, but one broad, benevolent, healing choice that is available to all of us who love and are bereft is to remember. Even when what we carry is not only love and loss, but also conflicts and resentments, remembering is a good thing. We do not need to sterilize our memories. They ought to be real. And we may not have our loved one there to work out painful issues with, but we can work on ourselves to make peace with what we know and remember. This can be true even for someone who caused us more pain than joy, who hurt us more than they helped us. And it is surely true for those who mainly helped us and loved us back the very best they could. Remembering is complicated. It happens in many ways, triggered unintentionally by familiar places, forgotten places, certain smells, certain songs and triggered intentionally by opportunities we create, publicly and privately, to remember, and thus in almost a literal way to recall someone among us. We almost conjure them back sometimes, so rich is the air with their words, their actions, their character, their living. Whatever form our remembering takes, it works against the obliterating power of death. Remembering is complicated. There is no way we can remember all of someone. We cannot encompass all that they were in this world, no matter how hard we might try. We will forget small things, even large things. Others may remember them, or we may be reminded of them down the road, or not. This is important because remembering will not work if it is an impossible task that we set ourselves. We have to remember what we can and what is important. 
Increasingly, memory books for a loved one are becoming popular. We fill them like diaries or biographies with photos and tickets and jotted notes and recordings. Some of these we do right away and keep. Some of them are never finished. Some of us keep our memory books in our heads or on a file on the computer or refer to our photo albums. We each have to pick our own form of remembering well. Any method works against oblivion because in doing so we are holding the loved one with us still and even extending their influence on into the world when we share what they said or taught us or did that makes us laugh or cry or better. Remembering is complicated. There is no way we can truly hold the loved one with us still. As Didion writes at the end of her book, I realize as I write this that I do not want to finish this account. I know why we try to keep the dead alive. We try to keep them alive in order to keep them with us. I also know that if we are to live ourselves, there comes a point at which we must relinquish the dead. Let them go. Keep them dead. Let them become the photograph on the table. Many of you know that at the end of most funeral and memorial services, I say something along these lines. An Asian proverb says, the remedy for dirt is soap and water. The remedy for dying is living. We live as fully, it's the end of the proverb, we live as fully as we may, knowing we will die. And we love each other, though we know death parts us. The remedy for dying is indeed living, fully and mindfully carrying forward the memories and lessons of those we've lost. It is our only and ultimate response to the inevitability and tragedy of losing those we love and even to our own mortality. As we close this service in their memory, I'm still quoting, we know that our sadness will last, though it will change, as will our love. We will carry them with us in our complex love and loss. We recommit ourselves to our lives and our work, to the tragedy and miracle of love, to the imperatives and grace of life. Unquote. This is what we have. At times it feels inadequate to our longings, and yet it is no small thing to attempt. It is not for the faint of heart. Live, love, mourn, remember, repeat. It is a simple, sobering, noble litany. We do it over and over again for those who grace our lives and leave us. And we can only believe that when our turn comes, others will do it for us. So may it be. Amen.